Hello, and welcome to Inquiries. You may be asking yourself, what is this podcast about? Well, Inquiries are questions. We're asking questions about how facets of libraries and queer community intersect, but make it gay. We are your glorious guides. I am Shannon Prukop. I'm Dakri Lambert. I'm Michael Dunbar-Rodney. I am Lisa Pouchot. And I would like to welcome a very special guest. She is a writer, un artista, an educator, an activist, born and raised in South Texas, member of the Sandra Cisneros Macondo Writers Workshop, as well as a recipient of the Mentorship and Leadership Initiative Award from the National Performances Network, author of Empanada, her first novel, and she is releasing her newest book, Cortinas de Lluvia. May I give a warm welcome to San Antonio's finest, Anel Flores. Wow, thank you for that amazing introduction. I'm blushing, I think. <laughs> or I'm having a hot flash, I'm not sure. <laughs> I had to. I wanted it to be kind of sort of WWF podcast style. So Yeah. <laughs> Love it. Need that hype music behind it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Eventually we'll add that in. <laughs> Edit and post. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, we're very excited to have you here today. This is this is awesome. It's amazing that you were you were more than willing. You were excited to be part of this. Yeah, I love the library. I've loved it from the beginning. It's the best place. Uh, free books always. Love the free books, free records, free CDs, free all the things, and and fun and community. So it's it's definitely a pleasure. I'm always hands off to the library for sure. Thank you so much. So we generally start the podcast with a weird like icebreaker question. And the icebreaker question we have for you is when you close your eyes very tightly, what color sparkles do you see? Mm, let me see. I'm going to try it. I mean, I see all the colors. I kind of see like kaleidoscope of uh, rainbows and just like everything. I start to see faces, actually. <laughs> start to see faces of people. So yeah, all kinds of things. Colors and rainbows and faces. That's fantastic. I see most of the time blue or white sparkles. Um my colleague Lisa here says she just sees darkness. Darkness. <laughs> uh, I see kind of this mixture of indigo and like lime green. It's interesting. And I don't remember because I refuse to do it today because I actually put on eye makeup. Um, I think it's normally like, unfortunately, kind of a reddish tan. Not very exciting. <laughs> Wait, so does this mean you're like not blinking all day? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Fair enough. Fair enough. Oh. So let's talk about um, your new book. All right. Cortinas de Lluvia. Well, I'm I'm really excited. Um, it started with this, my idea that I wanted to create a story around a time period in Mission, Texas, um, where the, my, my mother's from and all of my tias and where my, you know, my bloodline comes from Mission, Texas. And there's a moment in time when the Hay Salmon's factory was there, which if you, if you're not familiar with that, Hay Salmon was the back then Monsanto, which is now Monsanto. And they were emitting eight of the most deadliest chemicals into the air while my mother was growing up and my grandmother was there. Um, and, and as a result, people of mission and surrounding areas were born with different, um, ailments, illnesses, 
body parts missing, things like that. And um, there was a long lawsuit that I watched go on while I was growing up um, against this company. Um, maybe maybe about, I want to say 10 or 15 years ago, my mother received a check from the settlement for $850. And that's because we're talking about thousands and thousands of people now, like women, especially without their uterus, with, you know, so many different things, with ovarian cancer. And I thought, you know, one, I'm a storyteller of queer stories. And two, I'm a storyteller of justice and, and, and space and ideas. And that's an environmental injustice and environmental racism that happens in RGV in the Rio Grande Valley. And it still happens every single day. Day. Um, and so I thought, well, I want to tell a story about queerness and I want somehow um, Mission Texas to be involved so that I can have that as a backdrop of what's happening to these folks. So Cortina Zayuvia is going to tell an amazing story about a queer family that meets up in San Antonio um, from leaving from South Texas. So the, you're talking about a group of queer folks that leave South Texas, meet up here interchangeably and create a queer family. And they return back to the RGV to, to uncover secrets and stories and also reconnect with family. So there'll be a lot of wonderful tales. You'll see San Antonio, the west side, downtown, and the valley, and the highway, and and all the, you know, the trees, and, and palm trees, and blue skies, and, and Cortinas de Lluvia. And it'll follow the story of Solitaria, who will be known as Sol, as the protagonist. I love that. Sounds amazing. I can't wait. Very excited. Mm-hmm. Yes. I love how you brought up... Um, queer family and we talk a lot about found family um within within this space and we hope to talk about it more with each each author that we interview so how has um your found family helped shape um you today and as a writer and and an artist yeah i mean i i could definitely not be here without queer community um at 17 was kind of just like that jumping off point for me when my family and I severed uh, ways in in that we didn't talk anymore, right? I still had to attend the events to just like save face, like I'm still here being peaceful, but my relationship with them ended at 17 and um, for a while, for a good 10 or 15 years. And during that time, I just, can I say a, a moderately bad word? I like hauled ass to a feminist bookstore, which at that time was called Textures on McCullough. And this was in 1994. And uh, it was tiny. It was like probably 250 square feet, this bookstore. But from floor to ceiling was like books. It was a little upstairs thing. I went up there and then there was like a bulletin board with posters. And and I got there. I found the bookstore in the phone book, which we used to have too, um, (laughs) when we didn't have devices in our pockets. And I found that bookstore, Textures. I went there and on that bulletin board, I found an event for um, something that the Esperanza Peace and Justice Center was doing. I wish I could remember what the event was, but regardless, um, after that moment, I started going to the Esperanza. I started meeting amazing community there and and elders. I saw like dykes and, and femme queers and older queers and like queers with trenzas and like gay boys and like men in dresses. It was gorgeous. It was beautiful. And David Samora Casas and Graciela Sanchez and all these amazing folks. I'm like, wow, look at all these people dancing around. They're all queer. It's so fabulous. And honestly, I thought, well, I I can be this. I can do this, you know, and it gave me um, without even without them knowing at the time, it gave me an incredible hope 
to know that I could one day grow up to be these folks, you know, like Dr. Norma Cantu, for example, that I also watched in community. Um, and so right away, I pushed myself into their families. I'm like, hi, I'm an L. I want to volunteer. I want to help you. What can I do? Can I, you know, do your books? Can I do this? Can I do that? I'll sweep your floor. And um, soon after, I started to sweep the floor of uh, Martha Prentice, a jeweler here in San Antonio who passed away three years ago. And uh, she was a lesbian and everyone said, oh, Martha's like the phone operator of the lesbians. And she used to, <laughs> she used to edit um, Women's Space, which was a, like a little newsletter. She, she edited this, this newsletter for many, many, many years, Women's Space. And um, she was a jeweler and I knew how to make silver jewelry. I went to school in Mexico for that. And, um, but I didn't know how to use the tools in the U.S. So I asked her, can you show me you know, how to use the tools that you have and I'll do whatever. I was in college. So I would come right after school. I would like sweep her floor. I would feed her bird. I would polish jewelry. I mean, I did all the things that whatever she needed, I did. And she was this really cool ass white lesbian. And I, and I just loved it. And all day long, I'd be like polishing. And then some dyke would walk in like with a big old dog. I'm like, oh my God, there's another one, you know? And then a lesbian would come in like, oh, Martha, I brought you eggs. I mean, it was like the coolest thing to watch as a 19 year old, you know, 19. And I'm watching all these queers come in and out and like, oh, well, so-and-so is like going to do my yard and so-and-so is painting my door. I'm like, wow, everyone, it's gorgeous. And so, you know, with dreams and goals, I, I wanted the same thing. And so I, I very much do that. My wife and I have a home so open to queer family. We had someone over last night who just needed to talk. So come over. We warmed up leftovers. We talked till 930, cried, healed, gave him a little crystal on the way out. You know, that's queer family. You know, what do you need? Um an, another young queer trans man came by, brought us cheesecake. I had just come home from the gym. I mean, that's just the way it is. But these are folks that in all of us, we see ourselves in them and we are them and they are us. And, and that's the idea of queer family. It's important um, whether or not our parents still love us and we're still close to them. It's still an understanding that we do need each other um, to vibe, you know, and to take care of each other. Yeah. Thank you for sharing all of that. Um, I like to explore the idea of what it means to be seen as a queer person. And when that happens for the first time, that's something we talk a lot about amongst each other and how literature plays such a big part of that for a lot of people. And we were doing a little bit of a deep dive. So on your Instagram, you have a post that shouts out who I'm assuming is like a high school English teacher, uh, <laughs> Carol Magden. Mingden. Mingden. Carol Mingden. Yes. Yeah. And you talk about, <laughs> how she provided you with a series of books and you hated the first four or five, but in that sixth book, you saw yourself for the first time. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just thinking that's probably around the same time that you were here and experiencing seeing yourself in different aspects as well, like, you know, in a very tangible space and like that explosion of like just being seen over that course of the few years, I'm assuming was really big for you. So I'm wondering if you can share a little bit more about what it felt like to see yourself for the first time in a piece of literature that you were given. Oh, incredible. I mean, I remember the night and it, this was San Cisneros' house on Mango Street. And it's, it's, you know, some people think it's cliche, but you know, heck, she sold a hell of a lot of books with that book. There's a reason the book, book is popular. amazing. Everybody <laughs> loves it still. And I do. And, um, it was that book, you know, it were all those kids. It was the sweaty little kids. It was everything. Um, the boarded up windows, the food, the tacos and foil for lunch. I mean, all of that's real, you know, and that was all real for me. And that felt so gorgeous. I remember 
because she was my creative writing teacher, Carol Mangden. And, um, and I didn't take that course by choice. I took, I was coerced to take it. So I was like, Ooh, I'm an artist. You want me to write all day? Like I was not having it, but she pushed me and pushed me and pushed me. And then when I finally read Mongo Street, I was at home and I had my journal that I had like, you know, not written in at all. I was not doing good in that class or doing well at all. And I wrote all night. I mean, I just laid in bed, just like scratching into my paper, you know, just scratching, scratching, scratching. I have those journals still. And that was like the moment that I have three shelves of journals now, you know, that just filled, 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 filled. And um, incredible feeling. I felt like um, I had a story. I have a story and my story was valid. And so at that moment, I also not only understood my story was valid, but that to share a story was so important. And then that opened up to so much, just even to ancestors and traditions and telling a story in a circle and, you know, talking around a fire, those kinds of things. So story beyond the page, beyond the writer, but even phone calls, like I call people now because I want to know, I want to talk, I want to hear a story, you know, tell a story. I feel like that ties back into that whole concept of queer community as a space, not just a people, um, you know, a home, a store, a place that we all gather to. And it's it's tangible. It's very real. Like, you know, like, oh, yeah, we go there. Uh, I, and I love that idea that that it's it's very real. It's not just the idea of a community, but there really is like, you know, the spots, you know where to go. Yeah. Um, and like queer homes, they're always like that, like, oh, yeah, I have a friend of a friend who's coming in from out of town and they're having a hard time. So they're going to stay on my couch for a couple of days like this. Just Mm -hmm. it's so real. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's very true. I have two good friends who um, a friend and his partner and they built a house together and it's like four bedrooms because sister was living with them. And I'm like, why do you need four bedrooms? You're not planning to have kids. And then like three years later, they had two, we called them our gabies, two gabies living with them while they got their feet under them. And I'm just like, okay, you need, you need more rooms in your house. Like clearly this is, (laughs) this is now a thing. (laughs) So um, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, accessibility Mm -hmm. because we're talking about the process, the writing process, and how many years that has taken you um, to put yourself out there and and create this space where it's actually in a tangible place like the library. Mm-hmm. But I think um, with our deep dive that we did, uh, you've mentioned in past interviews the lack of representation in uh, Latin literature, Chicana, LGBT uh, LGBT as a young lesbiana. So how has that like switched gears? Like from when you first started to now, do you feel like you're seeing more representation and accessibility? I mean, I think that it's, it's, it's a little skewed in that I can see the accessibility in my social media or the, you know, the representation in social media and in social spaces that where people have are free to post and share Um, but that's my own curated social media. So it looks like the world is like doing awesome. You know, I only follow people I adore and they're 99.9 of them are queer. Right. So of course it looks like there are queer books just falling from the sky and black and brown and Asian books falling from the sky. But you know, the numbers don't show that at all. I don't think that anything has really changed. I feel like still Latina literature is still under 10%. If, if I'm wrong or right, I'm just 
throwing out a number. I mean, I've heard it, but I know it's up and down a little bit, but not much. And then in that 10%, the queer lit is probably even less. Um, so no, I don't think so at all. Um, I don't think that, I think that it has, I know that it has been tough. I know that we don't get the book deals. We don't get the advances. We don't get the hundred thousand, 200,000, 300,000. We don't even get $10,000 advances. We're like, oh, we'll publish and give you two free books. You know, I mean, that's the situation here and figure out your tour and figure out your this and get your own publicist and work 80 hours a week and write your book in your sleep kind of thing. I mean, that's the truth because the book, those deals are getting going to white writers, male writers, um, cis writers. And that's, that to me is the truth. Yeah. yeah I mean, it's a, it's a discussion <clears throat> of, of gatekeeping that's mm -hmm. been brought up um, so many times, but it's so true because, you know, we're, we're trying to keep or create the space of own voices, right? Because people have been writing about us and stealing our stories mm -hmm. for years. And, and I mean, come on, we're in Texas. Like, <laughs> yeah, this is Mexico. And before it was tribal lands, this is indigenous land. We know this, but do they say it? Do they treat us that way? They treat us like we're in the past, but we're not. Mm -hmm. We're still here. And so I feel like that kind of ties into that space of, of um, those advances. And I think that's why NALAC is important, mm -hmm. of reaching out to our community and, and learning how to um, write a grant mm -hmm. and that experience. Has that been helpful to have a mentor to mm -hmm. teach you those things? Absolutely. I started with NALAC at their Leadership Institute. I want to say it was 2005. So it was a long time ago. And I loved it. I still love it. I support them. They. I have received... Um, I received uh, the, oh my gosh, what was it called? Catalyst for Change Award in 2000, I believe. That was the year. And that was incredible from NALAC. And they have always done, offer so much different training. I've, they've taught me, I mean, there's free trainings online. Then there's the Leadership Institute. They do an institute where you learn how to, um, you think you go to DC and they teach you about like fighting for policy and the arts for Latinos. They do so much great work. So it has helped. Maria de Leon, who just retired from, um, not like the director has always just been a phone call away for all the artists, you know, and the folks on the board um, of Nalak as well have always been helpful. Uh, Rosaba Rolon out of New York and um, Charles Rice Gonzalez, who's another queer writer, um, YA writer. He's incredible. He also is in Nalak. So, yeah, Nalak has been great. I love them. And they're right here in San Antonio. So that's cool. Yeah, they're pretty amazing. There's there's so many grants out there, but it really is. It really is. Practice, you know, makes progress, right? Yeah. Practice the grant writing, get have those mentors on your side. And um, I feel like you talk a lot about that in your interviews, those mm -hmm. who have helped you in your circle mm -hmm. and and um, helped you navigate those spaces. So I think that's wonderful that that you keep mentioning that there is that, that road, mm -hmm. you know, that, that you have to take to get there. Yeah. I mean, um, I do want to say, however, that I'm – over the grants. <laughs> I have to say that. Yeah. And I have to say it out loud since I have this mic. Like, Absolutely. I don't think artists should be applying for grants. I think yes. that we should be sending in our art mm -hmm. and our CV and we should be getting the money. The answering questions <laughs> and doing these damn budgets and all this stuff that we don't do is why we're not getting them. Right. To, I mean, honestly, and I'll just say it, not only the but um I mean, huge grants, these all these big grants. We don't get them because 
they're being given to folks who have money to pay a grant writer mm-hmm. and the, the big ones, right? And or they have money to get an architect to do the plans for the 3D sculpture or the public project or for the bridge or for the mural. They have they have these other folks doing that work. And the artists, we should not be having to do that. And so I'm a little actually not happy about grant writing for artists. Yeah. Very and few creatives. people are happy about grant writing, it's to awful. be fair. It's not fun. Yeah. Um, it's just not it's right. Just, I mean, that's not yeah. what I, you shouldn't be basing what you're going to fund on something that you're not going to fund. You're not funding my grant writing. You're yeah. funding my art. Yeah. So give me the money because my art is good. Because <laughs> it is, you know, like, let me just show you how many people are reading. You already know who's reading it, who's studying it, who's reading all that. So you should just look at it, cry a little and give me the money. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Not on the writing of the grant. I'm, yeah. I'm sorry that the margins were three quarters inch instead of one inch. And <laughs> therefore, yeah. we are going to have to turn down your application. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. 101 words, except for 100 in your full life story. I'm like, mm-hmm. really? Can I really <laughs> condense my whole life into that? I, I really feel like I can't. The whole project in 50 words, please. I'm like, Yeah. Yeah. Well, good. I'm really glad I brought that up because it's it's a serious subject for 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 people wanting to become writers, wanting Mm -hmm. to can I all those questions that they have. Like, I want that to be answered today for any any of our listeners that are thinking Mm -hmm. about showing their art, whatever that art is, Mm -hmm. and. and so you're not just a writer, you're right. a painter mm-hmm. and you create Jewelry maker. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. do you want to talk about some of that? Yeah. I mean, it's the art came because I wasn't, I didn't know I could write, you know, so I knew I had to tell a story and I was in the closet. I was, you know, 14, 15, 16. And so I made art, you know, I, I drew bodies that had no, like, I don't know. They they weren't revealing of what what was happening right on the skin. I don't want to say gendered because right we're, we're through that. We're in the non-binary one. I'm not talking necessarily about that. But I was just drawing bodies like enveloped in one each one another and like profiles and such. And then uh, as I grew as a visual artist um, to tell those stories, I started to show more of who we were, like face forward, more body, more subject. But in that process, when I did discover that I was a writer because of my teacher, Carol Mangden, who told me, you're a writer. And I'm like, oh, wow, cool. Okay. I'm a writer. Take it. I'll take it and ride with it. And so um, I realized that that story could be told in multiple ways. And so it became, you know, my journey was I'll paint, I'll write, I'll paint, I'll write. It kind of became seasonal sometimes. I would paint, you know, in the winter because my studio didn't have AC. So I would only paint when it was cold. And then I would write in the house, you know, in in the summer. It was like one of those things. But now I just do it interchangeably. I spend all day in the studio. I wake up at 445, depending on you know, what I feel I'm writing or painting or meditating or all three interchangeably. Um, I do, do, I do make jewelry. Uh, last year I sold the rest of my collection and decided I was not going to do jewelry professionally anymore, only for gifts and friends and myself. Um, but I would, I want to just continue focusing on my visual art. Uh, I do have an exhibit that I'll be, um, part of in Brownsville, Texas, opening April 1st called Nuestra Delta Magica. Mm-hmm. And it's in my hometown where I was born. So I'm super excited. And it's uh, the I'm creating dreamscapes for queer bodies. And um, and I have created these also almost like 
super, super people that are um, uh, embodying all of their animal spirits. So I have some images of queer bodies, like with like hooves and and uh, pelican wings and different things. So that work will be there, and it's uh, it's queer imagery. So that op- opens April first. That Love sounds it. wonderful, man. Wish we could go down there and see it. I'm like, oh. It'll be up for two months. So okay. if you're down okay. there, okay. April, like maybe. April and May. <laughs> nice. Mm-hmm. So um, for the artwork on your new book, did you do that or <clears throat> who's doing that? I haven't seen it. I'm just right. curious. Well, we'll see. I'm working. I'm talking with my editor now. And I did mention when I signed the contract with them that I would like to do the art. And it is Jaded Ibis Press. They're incredible. And they're going to give me the option of submitting my own visual art. And I would rather, you know, um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't. At some point I was like, well, no, I would like to give an opportunity to another artist. And then my wife said, okay, you do that all the time. You just, you're okay to do your own art and your own book. You can give, you give lots of artists opportunities. I was like, okay, okay, fine. (laughs) So, you know, we'll see. I would love to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it would be awesome. Yeah. I was thinking about the cover of Empanada where... Did that kind of come from? Same. I mean, that's my work. And um, it's, you know, when I paint, when I wrote Empanada, it was, I was really harnessing like sensuality and eroticism and love and lust against the church, right? Against tradition, against the patriarchy. Mm-hmm. And I wanted that sensuality because I, I knew my grandmother so well. I loved both of my, my abuelitas so much. And I also was in that part of my life where I was like awakening all of my senses as a queer person coming out and going out and going to drag shows and all the beautiful queens and all the beautiful gay men and people and dykes and lesbos, all this love and deliciousness, right? I'm like, I want this deliciousness all day long, right? (laughs) And then I would look at my grandmothers and they're just like flat, I'm like, oh, that sucks, you know? <laughs> yeah. um, it sucked for me to think these beautiful women spent all these years without this, like, wanting to dance and sweat and, you know, love each other. And I'm not, it was just love, you know? At the club, you were hu- you were hugging and holding each other. It wasn't sexual. It was sensual. It was love. It was trust. You know, it wasn't like we're all having sex, right? That's a homophobic thought that people have. Yes. Um, oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> But so the book was about that, just that love and that that tactile feeling of the senses. And so that piece is about like, you know, those two legs are kind of touching, but almost touching, but not touching. And they're like thick and chubby, like all my tias and mine and my and all everyone I know and my family, thick legs, cute little short tacones, little pumps, you know. And then there's like a chile stuck at the serrano pepper on the bottom of the heel. And so I just was like, yeah, it's like I'm carrying my... My, my hot sexiness with me on my tacón, you know? Yeah. And that's what I wanted. Yeah. That's awesome. So, yeah. I'm really It's the image of the two grand. It's like the grandmother's legs in a way. So it's inspired by their young legs, you know, like where they were. Maybe they did have that moment under the table. We don't know about. Right. They didn't yeah. talk about it. I um, think about this question quite often that one of my queer teens in my library space asked me months ago. And they said, what do you think it's like for people that don't have queerness in their life? And I was like, really sad. <laughs> um, and so that it like resonates very deeply with this question that I just like constantly have lingering now. And we talk about it like every time I see them. Um, and I think 
you know, how you pointed out that it's a misconception that our community is like hypersexual and, you know, all of this stuff when it really is just a deep, sensual, beautiful, beautiful love, like the queer community and being queer is so beautiful. And it, I feel sad for people that don't get to experience Mm -hmm. that in one way or another, you know, Mm -hmm. because it's such a, like, you know, queer bodies are so often heavily controlled and told they are wrong. I feel like the community as a an, a push against that we we give each other permission to exist by mm-hmm. holding each other's hands touching each other on the shoulders um i came out much later so when i started getting into the community and people were so touchy i was like why is everyone touching me mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> i have a bubble and it is being invaded and i don't know how to feel about this uh but i i came to understand like it's it's a celebration mm-hmm. um you know yeah it is it really is it's so beautiful i mean it's just beautiful. I danced close to men, like close body, 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 you know, like Tejano and like all the things and like everything. But I never, it was never anything. I never felt violated or, you know, it was just love and fabulousness. And we were all fabulous, you know, and it was so great. Yeah. So beautiful. I love it. And it's great because uh, I'm sure it's the same with you all, but with like my queer friends, we say, I love you all the time. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And I do, do that with some of my uh, heterosexual friends as well, but it's a lot less common. Mm-hmm. Um, they take it much more seriously. <laughs> they take it much more seriously. And, um, well, at the same time, I think it's also that we, we see the nuance mm-hmm. in it. It's like, I love you doesn't necessarily mean I'm in love with you. Like, yes. I love mm-hmm. my husband. I love my friends. And it's it's the same. It's a different flavors of the same same feast. Oh, I love that. That's a good one. Yeah. That was beautiful. Very prolific. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. Flavors of the same beast. I love it. <laughs> so um, I guess we could talk about specifically, you kind of brought up your Lilita and um, my family's from Mexico and our matriarchs are so important uh, culturally. I, I don't feel like all cultures experience that, um, what they teach us. Um, maybe they do. I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, but um, in Empanada, in one of uh, the chapters, Mia Zapata, Una Flor, that one made me cry. Mm-hmm. It really brought me to tears. Um, spoiler alert, if anyone <laughs> hasn't read it. <laughs> Get ready. You just did an amazing uh, job capturing, like, the essence and the cultural importance of, like, of saying goodbye. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, you know, your character. And um, I thought it was beautiful, and I just kind of wanted to, like, delve into that but that process with you. Yeah. Um, you know, I, like I mentioned earlier, I adore my grandmothers, um, and grandmothers just in general. I mean, just people, family, but matriarchs. Yes. Mm -hmm. They were definitely matriarchs. Um, and I, and my mother as well, we did have our differences back from the earlier part of the interview. We had our differences for many years. We are back and good and loving each other and everything's wonderful. And I mean, you know, where it can be, we've met each other, where we are. And it's a beautiful thing. We love each other. Um, but the matriarch piece, the grandmother, you know, my mother 
um, she was a professional. She went to college. My grandfather was a feminist. I didn't know all this until later. He was like, all my girls are going to go to school and no man is going to, you know, no man's going to ask them to wipe their ass. I mean, that's how my grandfather, but in Spanish, all that. <laughs> <laughs> he said all that. That's how he raised all of my tias and my mom. So she met my dad. Um, they married. Uh, well, they dated for seven years. And I'm saying my mom because it's going to be connected to my grandmother for, for sure. And... Um, and then she just hustled. She was an English teacher. She was a writer also, but she mostly was a teacher. And she was a counselor, curriculum specialist. She worked for the Edgewood School District here in San Antonio for 30 years. So she was always working. And my grand and my dad too, constantly. They were just at work, which is most of us, right? And um, so my grandmother was there. And she, my grandfather passed the year before I was born. So um, when I was born, I became kind of like her other half. Uh, my abuelita Olivia, and and my abuelita Maria also. She spoke Spanish. Abuelita Maria Maria spoke Spanish. Olivia spoke English. I was raised by both of them when my parents were working. It was like one or the other. I slept with them. I hung, stayed with them at all times. I was super like, I'm the favorite, and everybody knew it, and that was all good. I was cool with it, you know. And um, and you know they, I heard all of their stories when no one was around. You know, I saw I would walk into the kitchen when I would still be asleep and they would be there early, you know, one or the other, maybe sitting by themselves, staring into space with a tear coming down their eye. I, I witnessed that. I know that sounds like impossible, but no, literally just crying at the table in mm -hmm. silence. And you're just like, hey, grandma. And they're just mm -hmm. like, wipe the tear, give you a tortilla. You know, I mean, this is that's the situation. That's what happened. And. As I got older, I started to go, why, why were they always crying, you know? And then you'd ask questions, and then the tias would come in. Oh, don't talk about My grandmother would talk about some boyfriend she had in San Antonio that lived on Mulberry. And I'm telling her story because it's a very valid story, some little boyfriend. But she would try to tell the story. She would tell the story about her boyfriend, and then everyone would be like, don't talk about that, you know, what about dad? He's probably rolling in his grave. And I'd be like, ah, leave her alone, you know? She's so allowed to live. That was, for me, you know heartbreaking, especially when I kissed a girl for the first time, because once I kissed a girl, I was like, oh, my God, this feels so good. <laughs> Everybody needs to feel it. This is the best thing ever. Why have I been kissing boys all this time, you know, or being told <laughs> to kiss boys or whatever. And and just that feeling. I mean, I wrote there's a piece in Empanada, too. I don't remember the name. I should know the title, but there's too many words. But it's, um, you know, there's a line where I say, I just want to like throw like your name up into the sky. Like that's what it, it feels like, you know, love when you love somebody, you're just like, Oh, I want everyone to know. I want to dance around. And so for my grandmother, who was the most sweetest, both of them loving, tender, powerful, intelligent, strong, like witty in charge, they could control 80 people in the house in Easter, you know, like when everyone's sweaty and stinky and chocolates everywhere, they can stop everybody. Mm -hmm. And I was like, if you're that powerful and you have yet to feel this kind of love, my God, that's so sad, you know? And for me, that was like, that's, that kind of opened up feminist thought for me very much. And that's when I started to research more authors, right? Like Anais Nin and, and Marguerite Duras and just different feminist writers. And learning more about like sensuality that wasn't introduced here, wasn't available in the U.S. or wasn't happening yet or, or just accessible. Um, and that's, and I started to weave that into my grandmother's story and just start to wake her up in that way through me and through love. And, 
And a lot of people have asked me like, oh, are you like, is that like about you loving your grandmother? Like, I'm like, oh my God, again, homophobic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, really? Yeah. It's so weird. Um, but anyway, it's okay. I have other people who read the book and get it. <laughs> so, so yeah, it's, she's, you know, very important and still very important. And, and women and grandmothers, mothers, um, energy, femme energy, it's very important because it's still seen as, you know, the sensuality and expression is still controlled. Mm -hmm. Our bodies are still controlled. We are still supposed to be in a box. And yeah. I don't, it's not fair. It shouldn't be like that. You know? Did you ever have the opportunity to have that conversation with her? No, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. No, my mother, who's amazing, was uh, just kind of put fear in me. She's like, if you tell her, talk about any of those things, she's going to drop dead. So I'm like, no, oh. you know, like I don't want her to be scared right. for my life. Mm -hmm. And, and for them, it was fear based. It wasn't really about anything. It was more about, you're going to go out there and someone's going to kill you. Someone's going to hurt you. And so I didn't want her to have that fear also, you know, that's another part of it. Worried. Yeah. I really, um, like the aspect of, of music and that playlist that you kind of put in there. I I, I just bring this up because um, before my, my Willita passed, I asked her what her favorite songs were, and I showed her YouTube for the first time. She didn't know about, she's mm. never been to the movies ever in her life. Mm -hmm. So I was like, what's your favorite song? You know, and she told me, and then I YouTubed it, and I played it, and she was just like, ugh, I like, her. I have to wait to hear it on the radio. <laughs> That's amazing. It, it was mind-blowing to her. And um, anyways, but I made a playlist for her as well. And it just, man, it, I can't tell you enough. Like, literally brought me to tears. I even told Dakri, I hope I don't cry yeah. <laughs> during this podcast. Tears are accepted yeah. in this podcast. Because I have. Yeah. There is crying in podcasting. <laughs> Specifically oh, yeah. in ours, Lisa. Yes, me. Oh, I love it. <laughs> I love it. I mean, I my grandmother would have me on my knees to press play record on the tape player when the radio was on. Like, she'd just be like, SOS, SOS, SOS. I'm like, I'd have to replay it. And then, oh, no, no, rewind it or forward it or turn it over. It's going to run out, you know, and I would have to turn it over if the song, if it ended at a certain song. And I would write, you know, she would write her the names of the songs. And I remember once I, the song Contigo a la Distancia, it's a beautiful song. Juan Gabriel sings. Um, Cristina Aguilera remade it one year. And we used to compare music a lot, my grandmother and I. And of course, and that's also how I knew how sensual she was. I mean, she was so like, she would just sing into the sky. And and I would, and I, I took her to Christina Aguilera's version and she loved it. So I, I bought her the CD that year. She bought her, I mean, every year I would buy her like whatever was the new music thing. Like I bought her like a tape watch Walkman or whatever back then. She had like the mm -hmm. headphones. I bought her like a CD wa Watchman thing whenever those came out. I bought her all that stuff. So. When I was, as I was growing up. So yeah, we had a great relationship and music and that's how we told each other stories through music. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for yeah. that compliment. Yeah. Thank you. I had to. <laughs> <laughs> I have a question about your family, your, you know, immediate family. Now that you have children with your wife, uh, I, and I know that they're older, but have you thought about yourself in the role of what your grandmother was to you as you age and your family grows and like what kind of thoughts do you have around that? Well, actually, um, my daughter, one daughter, Jessica, and I can tell people because this is 
Good. She's getting married in November, November fourth. Oh, congratulations! Excited. All queer. Both our kids have to say that too, because we're like, yes, goals. All of everyone's queer, and um, and they do want to want to have a children. You know, they have said that. I'm not. We're not pressuring them, but they've said, you know, we'll wait maybe a year or two and then have baby. So I already started learning how to make corn tortillas. Yes. Good, good, good. <laughs> I'm making beans. I'm making yes. all the things. I'm doing green shakes. I'm learning all this great stuff for the kids. And we have, my wife and I have two shelves of children's books, queer, black, brown, Asian, native, indigenous, all the things. We have co- copies of the codices. We have all this stuff for the kids. We're ready. I mean, nice. and I'm what I'm about is like, I want some food memories in these babies. Yeah. Yeah. Some queer food memories and parties, mm-hmm. queer family, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so yes, I think about it seriously. I think about um, in a great way. I mean, we're so happy. Our family is yes, my my wife, my daughter, our two daughters, and my wife and I, and a slew like a ton of other queer family. We our babies are older. Our our girls are older, and so our friends are just now having babies, which is kind of cool because um, now our grandbabies and their babies will kind of be similar ages. Which will be fun. So we're already planning all that too. Like, how are we going to do this? And are we going to do no gender? You know, la la la. They them all the way till they decide. And we're really thinking about all of that. What will they eat? Where will they go? You know, how will they dress? We're going to have like all the clothes so they could just dress up at home and all the makeup if they want it. You know, all those things. Is that kind of what you're asking? Yeah, definitely. (laughs) I mean, because that relationship was Mm -hmm. so important for you. So I just wondered if it had translated into you thinking about yourself in that. Mm-hmm. specific role yeah. you know yeah i have super like grandma grandpa energy together so i'm ready Excellent. i'm ready <laughs> <laughs> i'm so ready grandma's tor- corn tortilla with grandpa style yeah. it's a good combo yeah <laughs> outside i'm gonna do the asada outside and yes. the corn tortilla yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> i can still smell that yeah definitely Oh, I just, I, I love that we had you on a guest today. We were super excited to, to have you here. That's all we were talking about. Um, is there any other questions? A terrible capitalist side of me must ask, how can we find your work outside of, of course, finding Empanada in our libraries? Um, where can we find your work? Where can people go to buy your work to give you money so yeah. that you can continue to create? Thank you so much. And, and you know, it's not a terrible capitalist thing. I mean, we, we got to pay for these microphones. You know what I mean? It's the way <laughs> right, it goes. So. Right. And um, you can go to empanada book, empanada.com or empanadabook.com directly from the publisher. Or you can go to my website where there's a link. It's also on Amazon. It's at different bookstores. You can buy empanada there. Um, also, there's several anthologies that I'm featured in, Rooted, the Tehana Anthology with UT Press, there's, and they're all listed on my on my website. And Cortinas de Lluvia will be out in January 2023. My artwork, if you're interested in buying artwork, I have t-shirts, I've got all kinds of things on my website, anelflores.com, A-N-E-L-F-L-O-R-E-S.com. And, um, and you can, or you can social media me, DM me, message me. Or send me Venmos. I mean, I'm cool. You can yeah. tell me whatever you want. <laughs> or gift yes. cards to the spa. Whatever. Perfect. <laughs> so I know you do a lot of public speaking as well. Is that information on your website in case, you know, people are not into reading yeah. and they want to consume your written work in a, you know, maybe mm-hmm. a more verbal way? 
Yeah. You mean like the videos of my, my talking speaking engagements or that or like live performances. I know I've seen you a few times, so I I don't know if you have those planned out for the year or like how they can find where those things are going to pop up. Mostly social media. So all of that stuff, I don't have like a straight up web manager that really updates all that, but I just really, I, 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 uh, kind of hope that my social media does that work and the organizations that sponsor really send that stuff out. But my social media is all connected to my website as well. And I, anywhere you can find me on, on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook and everywhere, uh, at Anel, at, at Anel A-N-E-L-F-L-O-R-E-S. Perfect. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So thank you for joining us today. Uh, I hope you laughed. I hope we gave you some things to think about and I hope you keep asking questions until next time. Queers. Queers.